so happy to be here, so excited and to be able to spend another day uh, with the family of God and, and worshiping Christ. I mean, it's such a such a great thing to be able to be a part of. You guys can all um, go ahead and have a seat. But if you would, turn your uh, Bibles today to the book of Acts. We're going to... Um, we're going to just kind of move over to the book of Acts today and kind of pause from the book of Romans. We've been going through the book of Romans. Uh, we're getting close to completion with the book of Romans. But I want us to take a look at a few verses today in the book of Acts. And I really um, just sense the Lord's really just direction in this and really wanting to awaken his people uh, just to the world around us. And to what's going on around us, that we don't become so isolated, uh, that we don't become the boy in the bubble, and that we lose um, our desire to reach the world for Christ. I mean, this is really the essence of why we are the church, right? It's, it's to it's to reach others with the gospel of Christ, to bring them to bring them into the family of God. I'm going to read just a few verses today, um, but as we go through, I'm going to basically from this point begin to unravel the rest of this chapter. Um, Acts 17 today, Acts 17. I'm going to be reading uh, Acts 17, 22 and 23, and then 30 and 31. Verse 22 reads this, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship. Him I declare unto you. Verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath set it appointed a day, where he set apart a day, where he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for allowing us to gather, to glorify your name in worship and singing, Lord God, our gratitude towards you, a God in his mercy who sent his son to, to bear the full weight of your wrath upon himself in place of his people. Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude for your grace, for Christ himself. Let us remember this morning the freedom that has been wrought in Christ for his people. Let us remember the tragedy of our own lives, our own sinfulness, our sinful nature and the practice of sin and that Christ would die for the ungodly, that Christ would die for us and grant us eternal life, grant us deliverance, grant us freedom. Lord, in this we are so grateful. And this is the reason we gather this morning, Lord. 
for your sake, not our sake, for your glory, not our glory. So Lord, we'd ask your blessing and your power to rest upon the preaching of your word and upon your people. In Christ's name I pray, amen and so be it. When looking at these verses, we have to come to this conclusion. When we're looking at the book of Acts, we're looking at this particular moment in Paul's life where he stood upon Mars Hill and proclaimed Christ to the lost that were encompassed around him. But we always have to go back to our presupposition of who was Paul? Where was Paul's starting point? Paul at one time himself was lost and he was dead in sin and he was a proud and ignorant Pharisee like many others of his day. In John 18, 9, Jesus said this. His response to them was this. When they said unto him, Where is thy father? And Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. And in John 14, 7, Jesus said, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. For from now on you do not know him and have not seen him. This is Christ talking to people that profess to know God. They seem to be able to embody this picture before others that they were holy people, that they were people of worship. They were people of regulations. They had things going on in their lives that would identify them as worshipers of God, but at the end of the day, they didn't know God. They were lost. But yet they were the professed people of God. Paul himself at one time was one of these people. As a matter of fact, he thought he was doing a good service for God by killing and putting in jail the true people of God. And this is how absurd it is, false religion is. This is the absurdity of it, that you can actually think you're doing God's will by killing other people. And this is where Paul was. This is the absurdity, and this is what Christ is saying. You do not know me or the Father. Because if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ, you truly don't know the Father. You can say, well, I worship God till I'm blue in the face. But if you don't come to God through his prescribed way, through his son, which is the only way, you've gone the wrong way. That's the truth. There's only one way to the Father. And it's Christ's way to the Father. And it's the only way. Look at Paul before his conversion. In Philippians 3, 4, Paul said, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. In Galatians, Paul said, I profited in the Jews' religion above many of my equals in my own nation, being more zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever I had, he says, whatever I built, I count all as a loss for the sake of Christ. 
In Philippians 3, 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ. Paul was no different from the heathens that he was preaching to as he preached this unknown God. Paul himself, at one moment in history, he was one of those heathens. Whether you want to call them Pharisees, or whether you want to call them Greeks, whatever you want to call them, pagans or whatever, if you don't know Christ, you are a heathen. It sounds harsh, but the Bible says in Psalm 96 that we're to proclaim the glory of God to who? To the heathen. And those that don't know Christ, that don't know God, that don't truly know God, would be considered heathens. Paul at one time would be considered a pagan, a heathen. So he understood how to preach God's word. Why? Because he was changed by the gospel himself. And this is really the the true starting point, a true starting point for every true believer. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says, And such were some of you. You know, it's, it's interesting because I love this portion of Scripture because if we're truly converted, we're truly born again, this should humble us. This should quiet us. This should bring a meekness into our spirits, right? It should slow us down and make us think because such were some of us. He says, ye, but ye are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We must always remember the starting point. Paul had to come to this conclusion, his starting point. What gave him the bravery? What gave him the boldness? The audacity to be able to stand up in front of the philosophical elite of the day in Athens and preach Christ the way that he did. Unashamed. What gave him that bravery? Because he had been transformed by the gospel, the true gospel, that is. And only someone that's been converted by the truth, by the true gospel, will inevitably have the boldness to confront the world with the truth as well. Jesus said in Luke 9.23, He said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. What are you saying here? Die. Take up your cross and follow me. And if you're not willing to die, then don't follow. Don't come. Because that's the price of following Christ. is the death of you and your life and your ambitions and your goals and your identity must go to the grave. Because the Bible says that we have risen to the newness of life. That death must come to self. As a matter of fact, Galatians says we must even put to death our affections that we once had for the world. Not spend a lifetime dealing with them, but to die. And this is Christ's remedy to all of those who are held captive by your sin and worldliness and the lust of this world. It can be rather simple because really what he's saying is here, you must die. It's tragic, but it's the truth. It's the call of discipleship is a call to death. I like what Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, Jesus bids us to come and die. 
Paul said in Galatians 6.14, for I, listen to this, I am crucified. I am crucified unto this world and this world is crucified unto me. No longer am I held captive by worldly desires. And no longer is the world coming after me because it wants nothing to do with me. I'm crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me. I am dead to it. And it can no longer flatter me. It can no longer entice me. But it no longer wants me either. Why? Because I carry around the odor of death to the world. But to those of us who are born again, it's the sweet odor of Christ. The gospel must humble us. It must humble us. If the gospel hasn't humbled you, it hasn't reached you. You can't say I have been transformed by the gospel and continue to live as a prideful person. Now, yes, do we struggle with pride? Absolutely. Will we struggle with pride? Absolutely. But we must recognize that the Christian life isn't one of being proud. It's one of death and humility. But that doesn't usually make for good preaching today. But I tell you what, it's the start of every true disciple of Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about that. Picture Paul, the once proud, unconverted Pharisee, boasting in all of his good works and his pristine reputation, now standing upon this great rocky hill in Athens, 60 feet above the valley. Pull that into your brain for just a moment and grab a hold of this. Paul could now say, as it said in Galatians 5.1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. This is what he was dealing with. This was his audience. Here placed as he was in the center of, of this platform in the very heart of Athens with its statues and its altars and temples of deities all around him. He might well say that the city was crowded with idols. The historical context of this scene, Athens during this season of its existence was in this period of its greatest depression. When Paul well describes his impression of this famous city, it was lifeless, it was quiet, it was without trade, a city neither of merchants nor soldiers, full of lifeless objects of adoration, temples and statues, altars and shrines. He saw the city wholly given up to idolatry. The historian Petronius remarks in a kind of a Joking way, he says, how at Athens one could find a God easier than a man. Another writes how it was almost impossible for one to make his way through these idols. Just think about that. Nearly impossible to get through all the idols. There's so many crammed in idols in Athens that it's almost nearly impossible to even get through the city. Pisanias states how Athens had more images than all the rest of Greece put together. 
Xenophon's expression is the strongest when he calls Athens one great altar, one great offering to the gods. Livy's remark is also noteworthy. In Athens are to be seen images of gods and of men of all descriptions and of made of all materials. This is the idea, this is the context in which Paul is dealing with in his portion here as he is getting ready to proclaim Christ. Not only was Paul crowded in with idols, he was also standing toe-to-toe and eyeball-to-eyeball with Athens' intellectual elite, the Council of Areopagus. This group would be the basically the equivalent Greek version of the Pharisees. Interesting. They were not ones who were making a fair show necessarily of the flesh in that they were trying to win the favor of others by their outward conformity to the law, but they were too bewitched with an equally overzealous performance driven in the sense that they were infatuated, infatuated with their higher learning and oratorical delivery. They were performance junkies. Could you imagine, let's just think about this for a moment, you're in a completely dead city. This was the depression of Athens. It was completely given over to idols. So they just pretty much had been sacked. It was a ghostly town. Dead is all can get out. Basically, everything that was going on there with, with merchandise going through had all been pretty much shut down when Paul had shown up. But yet, there was the this oratory going on with certain individuals that would take turns going up there giving these really philosophically powerful oratorical deliveries of different views on different things. And these men were really like notorious and very well known and very powerful at this time. But this is what they did. They just took turns just intoxicating each other with their reputations and how beautiful they could they could speak. And all of these things were going on at this time when Paul had entered the city. Apparently, these men, the Bible says, spent their timing nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. They were infatuated with their higher learning and the beauty of their oratorical delivery, but at the end of the day, the Bible calls them idolaters. That's what they were. They're idolaters who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator. Romans 1.25 Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.4, he declared that my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but, he said, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. This is the difference that set him apart from these oratorical heroes, that his preaching was followed by power. I know a friend of mine uh, who preaches outdoors in Ireland quite regularly was out preaching and he uh, was surrounded by Muslims and they were just, you know, giving him a hard time, blah, blah, blah. You know how it goes when you're outdoors. Um, But when he got done preaching, one of the gentlemen came up to him and and said to him, one of the Muslims said to him, said, um, I'm not sure exactly everything that you said, if I understand everything you said, but there was a power in your proclamation. There was a power coming out of you in the way that you were speaking that influenced me to hear more. 
And that is the perfect example of what it means to proclaim the true biblical gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what Paul had done. Paul's Paul's preaching. You know, you guys all know, if Paul really wanted to get down to it, he could have dealt with these guys in any skill that they wanted to go toe-to-toe with. Look at his background. Look at his degrees, look at his titles, look at his trophies, look, look at his background. He could have used that to wax eloquent, but he didn't because what? He trusted in the gospel's power because he knew that his skillful philosophical learning wasn't going to do anything, couldn't convert a gnat. But he knew that Christ's power demonstrated in the gospel could convert anyone. And this is what he relied on. This is what he trusted in. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for he knew it was the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believed, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you guys know the number one reason why people don't share their faith? Know the number one reason? Well, many will raise their hand and say, well, they don't have enough training. Well, that is true. There is a lot of lack of training going on, but it's not the training that is the reason why there's such a lack in evangelism or sharing our faith. You know what the reason is? Number one reason, factual reason, unbelief. Unbelief. You don't believe. The reason why people don't share their faith because they truly don't believe that the gospel can change someone's life. The reason you don't share the gospel because you don't think in your unbelief that it actually has the power to convert. That's why you don't share the faith. That's why today you see all kinds of gimmicks, all kinds of things driven through the church to try to win people through their doors. All kinds of things to try to entice human nature, sinful human nature to try to fill the churches because they just don't believe that the gospel has any power. So they've got to change things and do things in such a way to add numbers to their church because they don't believe in the gospel. They don't rest in the gospel. And that's why today the, it's, it's tragic. It's tragic. Less than 2% of the body of Christ actually shares their faith. And that's sad. And that's not to condemn anybody. That's not to make anybody feel, you know, ashamed. But it's, it's, it's a wake-up call to really ask ourselves, why don't I share my faith more? Why don't I tell people about Christ? Let's be honest. You know, we can make all the excuses in the world that I just don't know enough to argue for my faith. But in all reality, if we just be honest, if we truly love someone and we've been changed by something, inevitably that's going to come out of our mouth to others. It's not going to be how well you are able to philosophically defend your faith. No, those things are helpful. Those things are godly. And God gives those tools to us. But the reality is, ultimately at the very end of the day, is your trust in Christ and in the power of the gospel. And we've lost that faith in that because we think we can add something or it's just not enough or we're ashamed, as the Bible says, of the gospel. Paul had the weapon of God, the sword of the Spirit. And we must always understand it is the Holy Spirit alone who gives edge and power to the sword. And the sword is identified as what? The word of God in Hebrews 4:12 it says for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow 
and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. And we know that Paul, during this time in history, did not have in his possession a New Testament. He was not holding a Bible, the KJV Bible, while he was preaching. Paul wrote in Galatians, he said, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For there, and he says, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul understood the preacher's equipment, and we should do well to know this too. I'm not talking about every single one of us who would be considered a preacher, but in essence, we're all to proclaim Christ. We're all to herald the good news to other people. And it's good to be reminded of what the equipment is that God has given you. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, 19 and 20, Paul said this, and for me, listen, he says, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that there I may, says it again, speak boldly as I ought to speak. He was appealing for this utterance, this strength in his preaching. Paul understood the power of the spoken word, which we would call the rhema word or true utterance, or we use the word unction. And the Greek word for, uh, for utterance is this. It's called aphothengomai. Aphothengomai, which the Greek scholar Dr. William Downing says, it is the very best word for what we consider to be real preaching. When describing Paul's preaching, this is the Greek word that is used. Heralding the word through a raised, elevated, authoritative voice in a prophetic utterance. What does that mean when you hear these types of things? We don't talk much about this in our day and age because we're so frightened of the miraculous. Anything that anyone talks about that goes beyond our reform circles, people get frightened. But what Paul's talking about here is a power evident in our preaching, in our declaration, that there is a demonstration and a reality of the living God in our proclamation to other people. It's not a lifeless dead thing. It's not a philosophical argument. We are preaching Christ, the God-man, the person of Christ, the only one that can take a damned soul Someone who's under the wrath of God and take that person and transform them, give them a new heart, put his spirit within them, cause them to walk in a way that they've never walked in before, transform them like, turn them into a worshiper of God instead of a rebel against God. This is the Christ that we preach. And it should be evidenced not only just in our behavior, in our own lives, that for the fruit of the Spirit that is shown in our lives, but it should testify in this reality that when we speak of our Savior, we speak of our Lord, that there is ultimately a, just a unusual power in our proclamation. This is true unction. Ian Murray in his book, The Forgotten Spurgeon, writes on the condition of the church prior to, the, to Spurgeon's arrival. He says the church was not lacking in wealth, nor in men, nor in dignity, but it was sadly lacking in unction and power. 
There was a general tendency to forget the difference between human learning and the truth revealed by the Spirit of God. There was no scarcity of eloquence and culture in the pulpits. But there was a marked absence of the kind of preaching that broke men's hearts. There's an absence of that. In other words, there was no evidential power of the gospel. A lot of eloquence behind the pulpit. A lot of human learning. A lot of self-help. A lot of great lecturing going on. But no power. Dead as a doornail. And this was Paul's strength, power, and oratory. This, this is what it was for him. It was a demonstration of power. It was the gospel. It was his full and complete faithful trust in Jesus Christ. That he, that Christ himself would unleash this gospel upon those in whom he was speaking to. As a matter of fact, in Luke 21.15, it says just that. Jesus says, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. First Corinthians one twenty, Paul says, Where's the wise? Where's the scribes? Where's the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill before the council of Athenian wisdom. Here he stood. And he said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, I declare to you. So we must come to the conclusion even in our own Christian lives that God is never proven in Scripture. He's always assumed. God never proves himself to you. Do you realize that? God is always assumed in Scripture. Listen to what Romans 1.18 says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which they may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Why does someone have to give you evidence if the Bible says that these things are already clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse? For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This unknown God in which Paul declares them is in response to their displays of endless idols that covered the face of Athens. These objects of their affections were nothing more than the response of an unregenerate men in rebellion to God, to a God, to the God that they know exists. See, atheism is nothing more than absurdity. There's no such thing as an atheist because the Bible says that God has made everything clearly known to them. 
but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is why it's so absurd. This reality of someone calling themselves something when in no way can they account for the way that they live outside of the Christian worldview. I don't have a lot of time to really get into this, but this is what Paul is talking about, that this the unknown God that's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness is the only portion of God that they know. They don't know Christ through general revelation. That is what's going on in the world. They see catastrophe. They see judgment. The wrath of God. They understand this because the Bible says that they have a conscience. That they know right from wrong. That God's given each man, each person, each human being a conscience. They know what's right and wrong. They know that lying's wrong, stealing's wrong. I don't care what you want to call yourself. You want to call yourself an atheist. You want to call yourself a Catholic. You want to call yourself a Muslim. The reality is that you're made in the image of God. And you have a conscience, and you know right from wrong. And only the true God has put that there. Because you're made in His image. You know this reality. This is the unknown God that Paul begins to preach to them. They have an inscription. They're very, very devoted. But they don't understand who this unknown God is. They have an understanding to the reality of their own conscience and sin and wrath. But they don't know Christ. So I want to break this down really quickly in some application points. The first one I just <clears throat> want to quickly elaborate on is in Acts 17, 16, it says that Paul had waited in Athens. Paul had waited in Athens. Because he didn't begin in Athens. He was in Thessalonica. But apparently in Thessalonica, in two different points in Scripture, in 17, was in 5 and 6 and 13 and 15 that Paul's, Paul's conduct got him in trouble. He was, he was in the synagogues. He was preaching Christ. And then, then the scriptures go on to say uh, that because of the preaching of the word and because they only said so there's only one king and his name is Jesus Christ, it says that he, they turned the world upside down. And then it goes on to say that Paul kept on preaching to such an extent where he was guided out of Thessalonica, taken on a ship, protected by his friends, and taken into Athens. See, Paul's conduct got him in trouble. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the sovereignty and the providence of God. Paul was so zealous for the truth, but in his zealous love for Christ, he was persecuted. And they were stirred up, the Bible says, with hatred and envy, the Jews were, and began to attack him. So they shuttled him and took him over to Athens. Paul arrived at Athens after, it says, a very turbulent time in Thessalonica and Berea, probably in the fall of AD 50. His stay seems to have been unplanned and turned out to be of a relatively short duration. He first reasoned in the synagogue of the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. In Acts 17, 17, Luke does not state how many days Paul spent there, but we do know this way of life that Paul lived brought Paul to this point. A very interesting point to kind of reflect on for ourselves as a church is that when you preach Christ, you preach the truth, you will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. When you stand up for what's right, you stand up for the word of God, unashamedly, without any compromise, you will be persecuted. 
But in that persecution in God's providence, he directs our steps. And this is why it's extremely important because when Paul got pushed into Athens, you know, Paul had a past of being about God's business wherever he was. Obviously, he got to this point because he was busy doing God's work, right? So what it says, he waited in Athens. What is he going to do, sit around and twiddle his thumbs? No. As a matter of fact, because the nature and character of Paul was to be busy. So the minute he comes into, into Athens, he recognizes this inscription. And he begins the work of preaching the word. His preaching and obsession with Christ and the gospel made him sensitive to everything around him. His awareness was that of, the, of a predator, a lion, a man wholly given to the ministry of Christ. The Bible said he disputed daily in the synagogues with the Jews, devout persons in the marketplace. He saw a city wholly given to idolatry, full of idols, as the Bible says. To such an extent, the Bible says that his spirit was stirred. There he is. He comes out of this turbulent mess, this thunderstorm, this warfare of people coming against him because of his stand for Christ. Now he's pushed into Athens, a place he never planned on going. He gets there. He looks around. He sees this place totally given over to idols. And what happens to Paul? He catches on fire. The Bible says that his spirit was stirred. And this is what happens to a true believer when he gets out into the world and he sees idolatry. He sees these things and he attacks them biblically. Biblically. Not worldly, but biblically. And this is what Paul did. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For, I preach, for if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, but for necessity is laid upon me. Cursed is me if I do not preach the gospel. Which brings us to our next point. The gospel itself. The gospel itself. This brings us to the, to the point where what message is Paul going to bring to a city totally given over to idolatry? He sees the situation. He stirred. He just got in trouble. He just got thrown out of two places, barely escaping death. Taken across his ship, shuttled, thrown in another place, and now he sees another whole place given over to idolatry. First, it was the you know the, it was where the Jews were. The synagogues were full of idols, and then you get over here to Athens, and the whole place is crowded with idols. What happens to Paul? It just sets him on fire again. It puts him in that place where he's ready to proclaim Christ. He looks at it from the way that we should all look at things. Many of us, we look at evil and we get so taken back by this reality and this horror of evil that we lose ourselves in the context of what's going on. We become so enamored and in awe of the sin that we forget the remedy that comes against that sin. And this was Paul. Paul was stirred up and he begins to preach Christ. In Acts 19.21, this apparent teaching that Paul was peddling, he was preaching was called a new doctrine. The Greeks there at this time called it a, a new doctrine, or they called it a new thing. And some called him even a babbler, and one who seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods. And this new thing wasn't new at all. The scriptures say that he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection. So you've got to understand something. 
When you are living in truth and you're living in the world, you're out in the world, you have to understand something. A fake gospel won't work. A fake gospel won't work. An artificial form of the truth will never work. I remember being in Scotland and um, we had an open air ministry out there. And I remember going out into the streets and just seeing, you know, hundreds of people gather around. And just, first of all, I was an American. Okay, so I kind of stood out because of my accent. Uh, number two, there was really at that point no street preachers around. So I was standing up in the middle of a sea of people. And I mean, obviously all these things are going through my head thinking, man, I'm going to get killed. Um, so I've seen the movie Braveheart before and I'm thinking, man, someone's going to come after me here as soon as I open my mouth. Began to preach the word of God and immediately, you know, it's not really like in America, but it's in another country, very similar to the Western Hemisphere. But the reaction was different. The crowds gathered, and it was a very thick crowd of people. There were people hollering, there were people mad, there were people throwing things, there, there, there was um, people happy, people crying. I mean, it's just like a riot and a revival all at once. But the, but, but the reality with what I had learned, that when I began to speak the truth, the gospel of Christ, the word of God, that the reactions that I had been told of throughout my Christian experience were that the world is just out there waiting for the truth. They're hungry for the gospel. But when I got out there, they weren't hungry for the gospel at all. They wanted to kill me. They wanted to take my head off. They did not want the gospel. They wanted me out of town, period. They weren't hungry for it. They hated it. And they hated me. And I began to realize that the truth divides. It confronts sin. The gospel confronted the idols of the city, idols in their hearts. And it was the power of God. No, nothing else going out there with a user-friendly gospel would have just got me thrown out of the city. Because it would have had no effect, no power, nothing. But because the gospel's power, it had the ability to convert. It had the ability to leaven the city. It had the power to grip and grab people and awaken people to who God was. I saw this with my own eyes. To such an extent, we started a ministry called Jeremiah Cry Ministries. Came out of that reality of seeing people actually awakened to the gospel in all forms. And they weren't all conversions. But I saw what happened when the truth was preached in a missile was shot into a group of pagans. And what happened? Wasn't hateful, wasn't unloving, was super loving, super compassionate, but the gospel had a way of just completely upbraiding the city. In other words, it turned the whole city upside down. I didn't, but the word of God most certainly did. A fake gospel wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have lasted. It would have been a waste of time. And a lot of the stuff that's being peddled around the churches, especially in America, is not the truth. It's not the, it's not the true gospel. I mean, there is obviously godly biblical churches out there that are preaching the truth. Don't get me wrong. But there's a lot of things going on in this country. Our country is in the condition that it's in because people have traded the truth for a lie. And they're peddling things behind the pulpit. That's not the gospel. They're afraid to offend people. They're afraid to clear out their churches. They're afraid they're not going to get a tithe. If they offend somebody, they're afraid to tell the truth because they want to be popular. They want a name for themselves. They want to build a kingdom, an empire. 
And they want to live like little kings on this planet. But the scripture says when the truth is preached, things happen. When Christ came and his ministry was fully unfolded, he had people coming up to him that were full of demons. They weren't running out of the city. They were coming to him. You must be ready for this if you're going to preach the truth. It's the gospel that Paul completely and totally relied on. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because he knew inherently that it was the power of God unto salvation. It was the power of God unto salvation. And you're flinging this into human beings that are made in the image of God that the Bible says are held together by Christ. Every atom is held together by God. Not pantheism, but God himself holds all things together. Everything is held together in Christ. And you're preaching this word into the public that has the power to take a person from being completely lost in the jaws of hell and bringing them into the family of God. Isn't that amazing? And only you, only a Christian has that truth. It's an amazing, it's, a, it's an amazing reality. Paul never did preach to please men. He says, for if I'm now seeking the approval of men, man or, or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not even be a servant of Christ. Interesting. 2 Timothy 1.8, he says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join me within the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul Washer once said of our nation, This country is not gospel hardened. It is gospel ignorant because most of its preachers are. George Whitfield said back in his days, he said this, In our days, to be a true Christian has really become a scandal. Today in most American churches, the gospel is not even preached. The sinfulness of man, the law of God, the wrath of God, the fear of God, the awesome majesty and character of God is hardly ever heard. When a brave soldier of Christ stands up and declares the true gospel to lost men, he is looked at like a circus clown. He is deemed a fool. He is looked at like one who is peddling a new doctrine, a babbler, one who is preaching an unknown God. Paul wasn't embarrassed or ashamed of the gospel. He knew where the true power rested, and it certainly wasn't in the vain philosophies of men. Which brings us to the last point, the message. The message. And what do you mean? Is the gospel the message? Yeah, but there was a way in which Paul brought the message to the people. That's very important for us to understand. Um, there was a way that he delivered the message to the people. In 1722, Acts 17.22, it says, Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. He confronted their superstition with a healthy dose of truth. Paul preached on the character of God, and this would strike their conscience with a terrible blow, considering that they were all under the wrath of God, and their guilt was manifested all around them. All the idolatry is just a manifestation of their guilt. Men and their activities... See, every religion, every religion that's ever been formed or invented is always dealing with sin. How do you deal with sin? Every religion has a way or try to figure out a way to deal with sin. It's always the sin issue. How do you deal with sin? 
But all these other religions and cults are always works righteousness. They always deal with sin in some fashion of works, which is condemned by Scripture. Only the Bible gives us the true remedy, and it is by Christ alone, through faith alone, is the only way that man can be made right with God, and the only way that God has dealt with sin. In Romans 2.14, it says the Gentiles know, the pagans know, the Greeks knew, they have a conscience, they knew what was right and what was wrong. They knew this as Paul had preached because the law shows the, the, the law shows the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul said in Romans 2.16 on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In Ephesians 5.1 it says that we're imitators of God. We have to understand that every man on this planet, every child, imagio Deo, is made in the very image of God. And it is also a well-known fact that never once in the entire book of Acts is the love of God preached. You hear that a lot today, right? You're not being loving enough or you're not preaching love, 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 love. But the reality is you're looking at Paul's ministry in the book of Acts he was compelled by love. He was constrained by love. Absolutely. To reach men. He was, he was motivated by the love of God to reach others. But he didn't preach on the love of God. He didn't. He preached their conscience, the law of God, the justice of God, the character of God, the holiness of God. Because he knew how important it was that men must see themselves utterly lost, condemned as transgressors and violators of God, the character of God. He must show men that they are lying, thieves, adulterers at heart, idolaters. And only through this kind of preaching would bring the knowledge of sin that he could point them eventually to the Savior. It's powerful, and we must do the same. Paul says in Acts 17, 23, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing or ignorantly worship him, I proclaim to you. Paul was going to proclaim the unknown God in a way that was going to be tasty to the people, palatable to the people, sugary. He was going to preach. Do you want to know who this unknown God is? Well, he begins to preach the unknown God to them, which awakens the conscience of humanity to the reality of their sin. Versus God as creator, we see in Acts 17, 24, God that made the world. That's what Paul says. God that made the world. And all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Which really reflects Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. He's declaring, I am God. I've created all things. And then in Psalm 24.1, we see God's ownership of his creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. God owns everything. And if you're born again, you're twice owned. You're owned because he created you, but you may not be born again. He owns you regardless. Whether you want him to or not, he owns you. And he is God and you're not. And he has a right to tell you what to do. Whether you like it or not. He commands you to repent. He never asks for your advice. He never offers you his opinion or a choice. God doesn't offer you a choice to repent. He commands you to. 
He commands you to repent. All men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has set apart a day which he will judge the world in righteousness. There will be a day where you will stand before God. I, I promise you that. There will come a day. It won't be with your pastor. won't be with your parents. won't be with your buddies. You will stand before God. Naked you came into this world and naked you will leave this world. And you most definitely will stand before God and give an account for your life. This will happen. This is why you need Christ. Be found in Christ on that day. And your sin will be found in you. We see God's ultimate supremacy in Acts 17.25. Neither is worship with men's hands as though God needed anything from us. Seeing he giveth to all life and breath in all things. Which brings us back to Exodus 20 verse 3. Again, you shall have no other gods before me. Acts 17.26 says, And hath made of one blood of all nations. That annihilates racism right there. That annihilates racism right there. Hath made of one blood all nations. Of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth. Listen to me. The whole idea of racism is, is a concoction that's come out of the very sinful heart of humanity. There's no such thing. Racism in, in the sense of people being mistreated for the color of their skin, yes. Absolutely. It's disgusting. And it happens all the time. And it should never happen. And it's extremely sinful. But in the Bible, the God doesn't separate the races. We're all of the human race. We've all come from the same mother and father. We've all come from Adam and Eve. We're all one people. One blood. One blood. This is what Paul is, is laying upon them. That you're not special. We've all come to, we've all have been created, we've all come from the same parents, and we all go to God one way, and that's through Christ. It's idol crushing. God's an idol crushing God. He crushes these idols. And a lot of times you can tell because it makes you mad when you hear it. It makes you mad inside. That's a good thing as long as it's conviction. Because it gives us an opportunity to repent of our idols. For the Bible says in Exodus 24, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Can you imagine all the carved images that Paul was seeing? This deals with the human heart. These images aren't just, oh, look at these images, it's okay. No, it's a deal. These images pop out of the heart. Jesus, Jesus said, so it comes out of a man, not what goes into a man. These idols came out of a man's heart. They were created out of the vile, depraved, wicked, radically depraved heart of humanity. This is what he was dealing with. This is, what Paul, this is what the Bible tells us in his word. Then in Acts 17, 27, it says that they should seek the Lord, if happily they may, might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And this is the preeminence of Christ, which is seen in 17, 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets had said, for we are also his offspring. Colossians 1, 6 says, For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible, listen, and invisible, whether by the thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto 
Gold. Remember we, we heard earlier that all these different man-made materials, they made all these idols out of all these different man-made materials like gold and silver. And Paul says right here, you must not imagine that this is the, this is the, the Godhead is like gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's devices. Not at all. And then he says, in the times of his ignorance, this ignorance, God did wink at. There was a time God winked at it. But now commandeth, commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because now I've just made known to you the unknown God. That was the title of the message. The unknown known God. I have just made known to you, all of Athens, all of you who are listening today, I just made known to you who this unknown God was. And you better repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, where he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. The resurrection, the power of Christ, is the final chapter that he preaches. God has set apart a day where he will judge the world in righteousness, turn to Christ. God's not going to accept your way or your style. The implications are clear in Scripture. The prescription's there. God, God gives us much diversity, don't get me wrong, and much freedom in our expressions and the way we love and worship God. But we must understand one thing, that we can't just make God into whatever we want to make Him into, turn Him into something that will agree with our lifestyle. We must look to the God of Scripture and agree with God Agree with God as the Bible says, agree with Him in court while you still have time. Kiss the Son lest He be angry. Now is the time to turn to Christ if you haven't. Trust in Him and He will deliver you from your sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time together this morning. We thank You for Your glorious Word. Thank You for Your glorious Son. Lord, I pray that the preaching of your word wasn't in vain today, but that your word was accompanied with power. And those of us who are truly yours were awakened to the reality that we have nothing to fear. We can go into this world completely trusting in the gospel of Christ. Lord, we repent of our callousness, our coldness, our dryness, our lack of love and compassion, our lack of trust, our unbelief. Have mercy on us, Lord. Grant us the ability to stir up our faith once again. Be glorified in our homes. Be glorified in our marriages. Be glorified in our children. Be glorified in our church. Be glorified as the gospel of Christ spreads around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. We now have come to the time of...